Welcome to Liturgy and Lawning, an eight-week limited series podcast about the church and the COVID-19 pandemic. We'll begin each episode with a question and invite each of our participants to, one, introduce themselves, and I'll wait to introduce myself until the question comes to me, and two, answer the question in turn. So we'll use a process of mutual invitation for this. I'll ask the question first of somebody, and once uh, the person I've asked has introduced himself and spoken to the question, they can ask whoever they would like to speak next. So our question for today is, when has liturgy brought you close to God? And Jane, I think I'll ask you first. So introduce yourself and then let us know, when has liturgy brought you close to God? Okay. Uh, well, I'm Jane Gertson. I am an Episcopal priest and a um, mom and spouse. And I also spent a lot of time working on new expressions of Christian community. Uh, I think, I don't know. I, I definitely have experienced mm-hmm. liturgy in moments where I have felt really close to God. And I've also experienced liturgy as really flat and dull and disconnecting me from God. Um, I think if I think back to examples of where I felt really close, um, I know my call story originates in um, a very high Anglo-Catholic church and a sense that all of my senses were really engaged, both in terms of beauty and incense and music um, the kind of physicalness of liturgy. And I think when I first experienced that, it was a real like wake up to like how liturgy can change us. When I think of the work I've done over the last couple of years, I have one, um, memory of a liturgy that was just so powerful. And it's was during a young adult retreat at our conference center and the chapel happened to be surrounded by fog that day. And in the midst of that worship that all the windows of the chapel were sort of clouded with fog, there was a moment as we were reading the gospel that the fog lifted. And I remember that there was a sort of emotion that came over the whole room. Like we were all kind of, there's this inward gasp and almost like tears came to our eyes. And it was just a real sense that, I don't know, the spirit was right there in our midst that God had descended among us and was kind of a um, kind of Moses in the burning bush kind of moment and a deep sense of God's presence in our midst. So that's the example that came to mind when I was thinking about that question in recent years. Um, and I will invite Di to share. Good. Well, I started to say good morning, and I guess I don't know what time it is for listeners. Hi, um, I'm Di McCullough. I'm a lay person with kind of a wide variety of theological training. Uh, for the purposes of our conversation today, I think it might be helpful to know that I'm also a returned Episcopalian. Um, I'm formed by a lot of traditions from Quakers and Mennonites to the UCC and the Roman Catholic Church. Um So I'm going to be coming at this from a little bit all over. Um, The places where liturgy has brought me closest to God and the places are the places where I'm reminded that our brothers and sisters are made in the image of God. And, and also where I have the biggest sense of 
the whole body of Christ. I remember the first time that I served the chalice at a funeral was the first time that I had this wonderful sense that as we were joining in the one body of Christ, it wasn't just the people at that particular altar rail. It was generations and centuries of of people who had come before us, uh, which was, of course, a really beautiful thing to be aware of at a funeral. Um, and that's that's the one that stands out most to me. Um, but the other one maybe is a more routine one. It's the sending at the end of um, of our, our normal Eucharistic service um, when we go out to love and serve the world. Um, those are the the connections. I know. I notice the connections to others in our communal liturgies. I notice intimacy with God outside of formal rubrics. How about you, Jason? Yeah. So I'm uh, I'm Jason Oden. Um, I'm an Episcopal priest too. Um, and let's see. I'm a dad and. I don't know how else I would describe myself. Um, but, you know, I think the, the answer that I think about is, is all of those times that I feel closer to God are usually in the times where in the liturgical uh, context, it's usually when I feel really connected to the people that I'm worshiping with and praying with. And, and, and usually that happens either on like a pilgrimage or some type of trip or some type of experience where we've, we've bonded and connected. And, and in that moment, we're worshiping together. That's, I, I have found those moments to be kind of times where I also feel most connected to God. Um, yeah. So what about you, you, Carl? Uh, thanks, Jason. So I'm Carl Stevens. I also am an Episcopal priest. Um, I grew up United Methodist, and that liturgy never really made me feel um, connected. And in seminary, I was I was part of a group who were pretty high Anglo Catholic, more in reaction against people of a let's just say the generation um, that one generation older than us who kept telling us that um, the church would die if it didn't embrace praise music. Um, so we, we all in protest went exactly the opposite direction, um, which makes what I'm about to say kind of strange because, uh, really the liturgy that, that stands out most in my mind is, uh, took place during a campus ministry retreat in Chicago. So, uh, about five years ago, all of the campus ministries in the province, met in Chicago and the, the theme of the weekend was music that makes community, which is something that Jane, you int introduced me to. Um, and so we had some teachers come from there and they, you know, everything took place in the Y itself in these conference rooms or not the Y, why am I saying that? It was actually the youth hostel um, in the Chicago youth hostel in these conference rooms. Um, and at the end of it, we had this liturgy, uh, where people improvise psalms and uh, led that. And there were different psalm leaders leading different psalms. So we improvised the Eucharist. And it was about the least high church thing possible. It was in this, you know, 
kind of ugly conference room, um, but it was so beautiful and so powerful. And I think it was because that feeling of being the work of the people was really there. Like there was no one could point to a single leader of that service that it belonged to everyone. Like the leadership belonged to everyone in a way that I've never really seen since and had never seen before. Uh, all right. So I am uh, the curator of today's episode and the, the topic, the theme of today's episode is everyday mysticism. Uh, mysticism being a somewhat scary term to people. So let me try and make it a little less scary. So I've been ordained now for 15 years and I was ordained for 10 years before I really found my people. I kind of spent my first 10 years in ministry wondering what I was doing and really whether I should be there. Cause I, I'm not the kind of priest who really cares that much about the institution. I really have no idea who is the bishop of a neighboring diocese or who's getting elected to what or what's going on at general convention. Um, and frankly, I just can't bring myself to care to know. So it really took me 10 years to figure out that if I was going to be a leader of a Christian community, I had to claim the kind of Christianity that I actually belong to. And I always had a sunset that it might be mystical Christianity or contemplative Christianity, but my, my journey had been a little bit stymied by the fact that I took a class on mysticism in seminary. And it was taught by a graduate student at the University of Chicago. And um, it was really all about finding the, the systems by which different mystics kind of created their understanding of the way that we journey towards God. And the problem with that is that as soon as you start reading the mystics, you begin to realize that they're not very systematic. Um, some are. Some are more than others. But some are just kind of floaty and all over the place. And... This professor of this class um, had been trained by Bernard McGinn, who is a great scholar, a great scholar of mysticism, and I don't mean to cast any shade on him, uh, but he did once describe himself as an accountant of mysticism. And so we were kind of taught that. We were kind of taught a almost a number-crunching approach to mysticism, which really did not speak to me at all. But about, after being ordained for about 10 years, I... Um, entered a program to be trained as a spiritual director and started to actually read the mystics in a non-academic sense and find that they were actually companions to my yearning, that they were mentors and teachers and people I was in deep relationship with um, because their question was my question, which is how does a human soul grow closer to God? Uh, so that is what the everyday mysticism is about. It's about just how do you in your life, in your current context, as exactly the person you are now with exactly the life you have now, how do you grow closer to God? So there are a bunch of different ways to think about this. There are a lot of different metaphors by which we can describe our life with God. So we can describe it as ascending a mountain or going on an inner journey, going on a pilgrimage, maybe Jason, to fit with, uh, with your interest. Um, we can describe it as a love affair between the soul and God, which is a metaphor that speaks to me the most deeply, or as imitation of the life of Christ or the organic growth of a plant or awakening from sleep. Um, Catherine of Siena, who I'm reading now, talks a lot about looking into a mirror 
Teresa of Avila talks about walking from room to room in a house. So there are all of these different ways in which we can think about the journey towards God, how our souls grow closer to God. And one of the great scholars of mysticism, Evelyn Underhill, writing in 1911 in her really monumental book, Mysticism, described the mystic journey after having read all these mystics and having come to understand all these things about them. She said that all of them kind of fit within this framework of five steps, um, which is and is not true. I mean, any, any kind of attempt to codify or pin this down is going to get a little inaccurate. But I like Evelyn Underhill's way of thinking about it. She says that if your soul is growing closer to God, the things that are going to happen is first you're going to come awake in some way. So you're going to have some moment where you realize that there is something that is beyond you and beautiful and glorious. And, and maybe a moment where you kind of transcend yourself. Um, this happened to me when I was 17 in the John Muir Woods in California, which is why I, uh, I started along a, a spiritual journey to begin with. Um, but after you awaken, you basically understand that um, there is something in your life that is blocking the, the very real and very intense closeness to God you felt when, in that moment of awakening. And so you have to figure out how to kind of extricate yourself from whatever the blockage is. And Evelyn Underhill called that the purification of self. And after you've done that, if you, if you manage to do that, um, she would say that then you go into this illuminative period where everything is beautiful and wonderful and you're walking around and there are butterflies in the air and flowers are blooming and it's all glorious. And you stay there for a while. Um, but what happens is you begin to see God in so many places that all the structures you had for understanding who God was collapse. And because you have no new structure, because you can't really understand what you're dealing with, you enter into this dark night of the soul, which uh, John on the Cross gave us a metaphor and um, talks about it beautifully. And so for a while you're in that, where really you realize that no action you make, nothing you do is going to draw you closer to God and you are completely at the mercy of grace. But grace will work in you and you emerge from that into union with God, which is a surprising, strange thought. But it really is the understanding of all mystics that um, it's possible for a human soul to grow so close to God that we are um, more or less united with God. The divine comes to dwell in us in this really intense way. So that's that's Underhill's structure. Do you guys are you guys familiar with this? Do you have questions about this or are there things about it you don't like? I was thinking about your, your thought about the different metaphors for life with God. And I think many of them have come up in my life. Like I too really like the idea of journey or walking a labyrinth. Um, but I think if I go back to the one that has consistently been most meaningful to me, it's this idea of organic growth of a plant. Hmm. on some level has its own emergence, its own sort of wandering path. And on some level is really cyclical. And so I'm very, I am familiar with Evelyn Underhill's, you know, stages. And interestingly, I was reminded that when I was taking a yoga meditation training, those stages are actually very similar to the ones that like the yogis refer to, especially huh. the sense of, 
um, you get to a point where you feel like you got it, the like illuminative life, the butterflies piece you were describing. And in fact, that's the moment when you're farthest from God on some level. And that's what spins you into the sort of what John of the Cross calls the dark night of the soul. It's the sense that you, you achieved that ascent to the mountain only to find out that the mountain was only like the tiniest little thing that you thought you'd achieve. <laughs> um, and so there is a part of me that thinks there's truth. I don't think that she's wrong about that. I think people do go through those stages. And in fact, part of the moving from illuminative life to dark night of the soul is a like losing of ego of like, I did this. Um, this is my journey to realizing that we don't actually have control or power over the ways in which God shows up in our life. And so for me, I guess that's where that cyclical thing about the, life of a plant comes in which is to say like i don't think it's a pure ascent of a mountain um no yeah and i don't either and uh, i mean that is the problem with underhill's whole schema is it seems like it's these stages you path through but in fact you you know Teresa of avila said no one is so advanced in prayer that from time to time they don't have to go back to the beginning exactly so <laughs> um and and Teresa's metaphor is in some ways much better because if you think about a house, you know, yes, there may be some rooms that that you are journeying into which were hitherto unknown to you, but you still wander through the rest of your house. You still go back into the mudroom, you know. Yeah. Not always in the bedroom. Um Di and Jason, how about you? Like what what a metaphors for a life with God speak to you most clearly? So one of the sticky things about mysticism for me is that there's an extent to which it feels, it seems more about the feeling of being in love than the part of love that's sort of lived out in faithful drudgery, right? Hmm. Um, and even taking the stages and the dark night into consideration, it feels like it prioritizes feelings. I'm saying feels even a lot. Um, more than how I understand love. Um, so, so I've got sort of a push pull relationship with that because I've experienced some of that intimacy, but even considering the ways it can ebb and flow, I'm not convinced that, that those sparkly feelings or, or even at the end that union feeling, maybe not end as we're cycling, but even I'm just, I'm just really hesitant to prioritize feelings. Um, always. <laughs> um, so when I think of the metaphor of life with God, um, I'm still including the relationship with God. Um, but I think of things like breath or waves. I think of movement back and forth between interiority and and facing outwards, we allow ourselves to be changed by God. We, we allow ourselves, we allow God to draw near to us, I think is maybe the way I want to put that. Um, and then offer that changed self to the service of God and to the world. But it sort of goes back and forth a lot. Um, and the feelings might show up, but they also might not. And that's kind of where I am. What about you, Jason? Um, you know, I you would think that I would resonate with that inner journey, but I, I I don't, and I'm I don't know if I would even describe myself as a mystic or really one who even 
seeks out like real like spiritual experiences. I mean, I, I, I don't know. I don't know why. I don't know how that connects with what I do and, and what I'm all about. But I mean, I do care about pilgrimage in a sense, but I think it's more about really the experience of the, of it's a, it's a, like a physical journey. And like, I maybe the metaphor is the ascent of a mountain, but it has nothing to do with like a sacred direction. Like going up is like something like I'm going to find God on a mountain, even though I know that's very, you know, kind of a common motif, but, but for me, it's more just like, and I don't know why really, but it's like, I feel like once I going through some process of, of suffering and not in a sense, because I, I have some kind of low self-esteem or, or desire to be kind of, um, you know, ascetic or anything like that or, or I think it's just a sense of like I have ex- I have experienced profound meaning when I have gone through whether a sense of suffering whether it's like a one one that I've chosen in a sense that I've chosen to do something that is that goes against my own inner desire for you know like I think it's that like difference between, you know, how like the spiritual versus worldly. And, and we kind of see that as kind of two opposing things. And, and I think the ancient kind of view is, is, is it's, it's more of a contrast. You know, the spiritual person seeks after God and, and willing to kind of live a process, live a journey. And even one that causes suffering to, to experience God versus the worldly journey that, really seeks to find pleasure. And so I don't know. I mean, I, there's just something about the journey and particularly the suffering and the journey that that's important for me. Hmm. Mysticism. What one complaint, one complaint that people often make about mysticism is that it's passive rather than active. And, and I hear a little bit of what you're saying there. Um, although maybe I'm, I'm misinterpreting you. Uh, but I would say this, like if one is to go be active in the world and to do so with love, one does kind of have to try and get one's soul right. You know, like there are plenty of good justice movements and good charities that are led by not very good people. And because of that, they kind of tend to fall apart or contribute to the problems that they're trying to solve or break down. And so one of the questions of mysticism is not how do we just all be passive, but how do we get our souls right to a point where our act, our activity is actually aligned with God's love for the world? Um, and Jason, I mean, that suffering is part of that, right? <laughs> like, uh, like one reason people can't um, do this is because they, they don't feel like they should suffer, you know? Mm-hmm. So when they start to suffer, when, when they feel the parts of themselves begin to die, that really do need to die. So something new can be reborn. Um, they run away or they rebel or they get angry or they fight, whatever the case may be. Um, so I think it's all there. I, I don't think, I think there is a, a confusion of mysticism with a kind of quietism, which says it's okay for me to just sit in my room and gaze at my navel and then I'll be fine as long as I feel like God is close to me. But no real mystic would actually agree with that. Yeah. Yeah, I would agree with that, Carl. Like, it feels to me like when I actually read the mystics or know their stories, 
you know, they are so actively engaged, if not physically, like the way we think of justice movements now, at least through their writing or through their thinking, um, there's a wrestling, a sort of living out of their desire um, that does involve them sort of coming face to face with their own inner demons and their own the things that are challenging, both whether that suffering comes from within, which I think often it does, or suffering that comes from without a sort of something that has happened to us that brings us closer to God or deeper insight about who God is. Yeah, I think that too. I mean, that's part of why the metaphor that I like is one that um, has a rhythm of sort of outwardness and inwardness, because I think we have problems if we lean too hard in either direction. And one of the reasons that um, when I think of mystics whom I really admire, I like Julian a lot. And the reason I like Julian a lot is she was an anchorite. She was in her cell, but she was incredibly accessible. And in fact, as I'm thinking, you know, we're recording this during COVID quarantine. And um, Hmm. are any of you noticing that as you are, you know, sealed away in your cells that in some ways we've become more accessible and more, um, I am serving more people in some ways from, from my, within my little walls and Mm -hmm. I am making myself more accessible to other people because I feel like there's a need right now. Um, so Julian's a fun one to think about when I think about interiority and exteriority and balancing those things. Um, and the work of mystics. And she also lived through three versions of the Black Death. Like exactly. it swept through England three times during her life. Yeah, I've been thinking <laughs> about her an awful lot lately for those reasons. Yeah. <laughs> you know what, Di, though? Like, I've had, like, I'm having a different experience being quarantined at home because, like, I think this is the time where I have never been so engaged in prayer and discipline in kind of, spiritual disciplines and and yet like i'm like going i want to go help people i want to go do something that's helpful and i feel like i am neglecting that and i i feel like i'm failing like as a sense of like i'm not and it's i'm not doing like i'm kind of like just um kind of sitting in this um uh quarantine time just kind of relaxing and it's like, I need to be doing something. I don't know. So I'm just having a, I'm kind of having a different feeling where I don't feel like I'm helping people very much. Um, even if I am, even if, you know, we could argue, even that's arguable. I mean, I just, I feel like that's where I'm at. It's tricky, I think, because service has to look different right now. Um, and the things that have been strengths for so many people are not ways that we can serve right now. So I imagine that's, pretty difficult. Although it is a question like what during this time is, is going to help us become the people who can really serve in new ways once we emerge from it. Right. Like is sitting in place here, maybe engaging in spiritual practice without um, a huge amount of the, the activity that we usually think of as being of help to the world is that kind of allowing us to become people who, when we finally are allowed out into the world, will be able to do more good or do good in a different way? 
I don't have answers because I'm busier than I've ever been. And I'm <laughs> <laughs> you're already finding ways to do it from from home. Yeah. Um, and well, I'm sorry. Maybe that is a difference between where clergy are right now and where lay people are right now. Because so many of your functions are tangible and so many of them take place in specific structures. I don't mean building structures. I mean, um, so we have a little more flexibility in some ways. We have had to be more creative as well. That that makes sense to me. I mean, I've been thinking one of the things I really miss doing is is private home communion. Like I miss bringing communion to people. And it is true I can talk to people on the phone, yeah, right. but the structure is gone. And, and Di, I think what you're saying is right. Like maybe I have become too reliant on the structure um, and this will help me kind of be happy when the structure comes back, but also kind of come into the room with that little communion kit in a completely different way. Not thinking like I have the thing, this product to offer, but more, I'm just going to sit with this person. And if they take communion or not, it's entirely up to them. And regardless, it is time well spent. Yeah. I think that's actually really, I, I think there is something in that and in your comment die just about the structures by which we find ourselves serving I, I think it's a question of presence, right? And then like, and maybe that is the connection to mysticism of like, what does real presence mean? Um, and is it about the thing or is it about the intention with which we bring the thing? And until we yeah. have an understanding of that, which is an interior growth thing, um, I'm not sure we'll, yeah. I mean, yeah, the way we show up is different once we know that. It feels nuanced, but it also feels like a super, a very different way of doing ministry to me. Well, it kind of leads me to my next question for the group. Um, and, and I don't know if I thought about this in the right way when I was, when I was creating it. Um, so let me give you a little background story. Um, I had a friend in seminary who got divorced in the midst of seminary and it was very hard for her, uh, and she was very sad, as you can imagine. Um, but she also at one point said, we need a liturgy for divorce, mm-hmm. right? There, there has to be a way in which what I am feeling right now can be spoken to in my worship of God. And right now, there, that just doesn't exist. My experience is being kind of ignored by the worship of my church. Um, and so I wonder, like, because we are talking about liturgy in particular, you know, is there a a human experience, like a particular person you can think of who's going through something where kind of the, the forms of our liturgy have ceased to help them draw closer to God in that moment, in the thing they're going through right now? I mean, for my friend in seminary, obviously it would be some liturgy that would sacra sacralize, the the pain of divorce. I think a really, I think a really similar thing that I hear a lot um, is that fertility is one of those things that the church ah. doesn't acknowledge, um, and issues around that 
are not, and particularly grief around that is not acknowledged in the life of the church. And it's particularly tricky, right? It's funny. Um, I was just looking at a forum where somebody was asking, Hey, what do we do about mother's day in the church when we can't gather and when we can't give out whatever thing we're usually going to give out? Um, I avoided going to church on mother's day for several years. Um, it's not of course a feast day in our church calendar. Um, and for a lot of different reasons, many people have some complicated feelings about it. Um, but one piece of why Mother's Day is a tricky Sunday in church um, is fertility, and we don't talk about it. But we have an awful lot of stories in our Christian scripture, um, and there are stories in Hebrew scripture about how unexpected fertility is a gift from God and that it is received by faithful women. And we don't have a we don't have a codified way of saying it doesn't always happen that way. Yeah. Yeah. To, to say we honor the, the ongoing grief of, of knowing that one might not have this. Hmm. Or even that one doesn't want it. I mean, I think that's another piece is that there are, I know many women who long for it, but I also know lots of women for whom it's not a life goal. Um, right. And so, yeah, I mean, I think how we hold up families and even the structure of families and what makes a normal family, I think in many ways, a lot of our liturgy is heteronormative. And I think we need to be conscious of that. Um, I think, you know, the Episcopal Church has worked at that, but I talk to a lot of people, um, the LGBTQ spectrum for whom it still feels like we talk about our families in a specific kind of way. Um, Mm -hmm. I would say another thing that I think that the church, I thought of two things. One, I was thinking about people in recovery and how, and then the other is sort of like mental health issues in general and not having liturgies or ways of talking about that. Um, I've actually thought about that a lot. Like, you know, we do birthday and anniversary blessings and celebrations, but, and I always try to ask the question as openly as I can, like, what else are we celebrating? But I don't think people actually feel comfortable. And I remember being in a church where someone stood up and said, I'm celebrating three years sober or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think I long for both opportunities and liturgical practice to name when we don't achieve our goals or live we're living in the maybe not yet. I don't know where I am stage of life. Yeah. Um, but also other kinds of celebrations and like liturgies that honor those things. I, I mean, I would enjoy a liturgy that honored a significant failure. Yes. You know? <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. yes. Yeah, I'm, I'm longing for liturgy that, celebrate the authenticity and the realness of people and and it goes back to my original answer i mean that helps me to feel connected in ways that are so profound and deep that that allow me to experience you know god in just a new way and i yeah i liturgy that somehow acknowledges that and recognizes it which i long for it i <laughs> talk about liturgy and longing 
Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, I remember uh, in my early 30s, you know, I had gone through my 20s thinking I have to become significant in the world. I have to become some giant success. And that there was this moment in my early 30s where I realized I don't. I don't have to do that at all. And it was so beautiful. It was so freeing. Um, and, and in a certain sense, it was a failure because I was not going to achieve the ambitions that I had set out to achieve. But it was such a successful failure. You know, <laughs> it's like, thank God. Thank God I am, I am just like other people, you know? Yeah. <laughs> So, and, and I always think about the, the pair, you know, the parable of the Pharisee and the publican in terms of that, you know, to me, to, to turn from the Pharisee where you're saying, oh, thank you that I'm not like other people and to become the publican where you say, oh, thank you that I'm exactly like other people. You know, that is a, that's a very worthwhile thing to celebrate. I, I love it that you use the King James English there, the publican. Oh, <laughs> Well, okay, so maybe I'm like people from like the uh, you know the 17th century. <laughs> so I just thought thinking about your example of failure and not achieving things, but I wonder if there's also something in our liturgies about naming, and maybe this is coming on the heels of you know uh, hearing about doubting Thomas, which Jason wisely said maybe is less about doubt and more about Thomas's desire, uh, which I think there's really a beautiful metaphor there but i wonder about churches a, a way of doing liturgy a way of being a faith community that honors the not knowing the answer and for me the noon service new worshiping community at the cathedral does that really beautifully which holds space for people to like not affirm their faith in some sundays like <laughs> I now affirm all of this in order to be part of the community. And one of my things with Fresh Expressions is I used to say, like, so many of our communities, you don't get to be part of the community until you walk through the red doors and say the Nicene Creed. And then people may greet you and invite you to participate. Um, and when I look back on liturgies that have been meaningful, one was when we did the play conference and Carl, I don't know if you remember this, but one of the things we did was we were sort of riffing on sort of jazz and improv. And yep. we, we did this thing where we said, what if we improved the creed, which is. Yeah, I remember this very well. But instead of saying affirm what other people affirm, it, the, the invitation was tell us about the God, you know, tell us about what you know of you know, your own faith tradition and being able to hear people reflect on a God who accepted them regardless of what they believed or didn't believe or a God who manifested love in, in the world. And I don't know, I think something about that for me is like holding space for both what people know to be true as well as what, um, what they don't know yet. I agree. That was such a beautiful experience. And and I think we went into that with like some trepidation. We were like, well, what if nobody stands up? You know, what if we invite people to yeah. say what they believe and there's we're met by silence and it was exactly the opposite. Yeah, it was just voices like in every corner of the church beginning to like bring what they what they felt and had experienced to bear in this community and it was it was just so beautiful because it was so like, this is us. This is our profession of faith. And 
and you know, we also worried like, what if people said things that are like inappropriate or something? And <laughs> I don't even know why one worries about things like that, but it just was so like every single thing was like brought me to tears. Each person's witness. I mean, it really was a sort of process of offering people a space to witness to what God was doing in their life. Yeah. Um, so here's a question for those who, um, who plan liturgy. Like wh- when we set out to plan a Sunday's liturgy for the, for those of us who do that or, uh, die, cause I know that you're doing, um, evening prayer right now when you set out to do that is the prime question in your mind, um, how, how will the shape people in their, in, in their attempts to grow closer to God? I, I have to say, and I will just admit for myself um, that for me, it really isn't most of the time, you know, like I get lost in the weeds and the mechanics of the thing, which is, I think, always a mistake. And yet it is, a, I think a, it's a professional um, debility that we get pulled into this. I think it's something I've learned to do over time um, is to really ask myself that question is not what am I doing right or wrong or fit every check mark box, but like what's the experience of people as they go through this liturgy? So, you know, like one example right now is, is we're moving from Eucharist to doing morning prayer. I mean, one of my things about morning prayer is it can be really, really wordy, especially if the officiant is reading most of the words so where's the opportunity for more voices and different perspectives? And where's the opportunity to say, maybe we don't need all these words, you know, maybe there's a need for more silence or, you know, contemplation or some other thing. But I think asking that question about how, how will we experience this? I don't know if I ask like exactly your question, like how will God show up for other people? Cause I don't think I have control over something like that. But I think asking about what the experience of it might be is feels important to me. So I think that this is going to be one of those places where me being a denominational mutt really shows up. I um, wasn't thinking about Compline when I thought about this question. I was thinking about um, some of the adult formation that we've done around adult, around racial reconciliation and um, around accessibility with disabilities, um, although it's true when I think about it in the context of Compline too, I always think about naming where we might be starting from and using the liturgy to try to move us forward. Um, so I think about it every time. I think about it with Compline. It's part of why I started doing Compline, I think the first or second night that we started quarantine um, because I knew I was having a hard time sleeping and I knew that there was not a lot of peace in the evening. Um, And I suspected that it wasn't just me. Um, And Compline is beautiful, right? And there was so much in it. Shield the joyous. Gosh, they closed schools yesterday, which was totally the right decision. Um, But shield the joyous. So I always, I always, always, always think name where we're starting things, let people have a chance to look straight at either the good or the bad that we're knee deep in. And then where do we go next? I think that some of you know that I'm obnoxiously crazy about Walter Brueggemann's work. And I read his prophetic imagination. 
I don't know, in my formative years. Um, and that's exactly how I think about all of ministry. Lament where we need to look straight at where we are, name it out loud, and then work together to figure out how to get closer to the vision of the kingdom of God. That's great. I, I, I'm going to try to imitate that more and more. One of my favorite authors, like theologian authors, um, is Philip Sheldrake. I don't know if anybody heard of him. Um, but he, he kind of, he creates this typology for like different types of spirituality. And like one of them is like, it was like this, like a mystical spirituality and there's like, um, ascetical and he says, the other one was like an active practical. And then the fourth one he says is prophetic critical. And, and that prophetic critical spirituality is kind of like, you know, the think of like, um, you know, Martin Luther King Jr. or, um, Dietrich Bonhoeffer or, so I think with liturgy, it comes for some reason. I, I, I think I, I think I naturally kind of, um, lean towards that prophetic critical. And so I'm probably every I'm doing liturgy or thinking about liturgy through that lens, um, how it, how it really actually kind of manifests. I don't know, but I think that's probably where I, when it comes to liturgy and when I'm kind of in charge of planning or putting it together, I think there's something that always kind of draws me to that, that lens and how I put, how I either, not necessarily because the liturgy dictates a lot of the things that we do, but, but especially how I put it together probably comes through that lens. So for me, that's it. I, I think I have some of that, at least in preaching. Like to me, I'm always very concerned um, that people are kind of unthinkingly bowing or ascribing to or conforming themselves to some societal definition of who they should be. Yeah. Uh, so I'm always worried that, you know, people are, um, caught in a certain role that has just been given to them and that they, because of that, it's getting in their way. It's one of those blockages that's getting in the way of their growing closer to God. So I, that I think for me is where the prophetic critical part comes in, yeah. um, but, de but definitely more in preaching than in liturgy planning. I think I'm probably more of a preacher than a liturgist in general. So yeah, that can't be yeah. that surprising. Um, well, let's turn to the article. So the article I chose for today is actually the preface from this, this book by David Fagerberg. David Fagerberg is a, a theologian and a professor at Notre Dame. And last year, uh, he, a book of his came out um, called Liturgical Mysticism. And I only found it at the beginning of this crisis because I was trying to figure out how to do liturgy. And I was like, well, I, I don't want to just pick and chew things. I want to do it with some intentionality. I want to think through what all this means. Um, but I'm not a liturgist and I'm actually barely a theologian. Uh, so I, I need somebody to help me. Um, so I turned to him and I would say this, uh, you guys should be happy. I just gave you the preface because it is most clear that he is in any of this. And he does that, that academic theologian thing I hate, which is he like uses all these completely nonsense words. I mean, they're, they're good words and they're drawn from Greek and they have like deep meanings, which he's sometimes good at unpacking. But, you know, at a certain point in this, he gets to a definition of uh, what is going on. And that definition is so ridiculous or so confusing to me. 
that he almost lost me. He says, liturgy is the perichoresis of the Trinity canonically extended to invite our synergistic <laughs> ascent into deification. And at that point, I was like, I'm going to throw this book across the room. <laughs> I do not care for this. <laughs> But fortunately, he says some other good things in the in the preface that I'm hoping that you were able to look past that really terrible definition um, <laughs> to, to find some value. Um, I will say that, that some of the value I found just kind of lies in his essential question, which is he, he describes liturgical mysticism as the question of what liturgy does to us. Like, how is it working to help bring us closer to God? Um, and, and he has certain ways in which it does, which I, in, in general, agree with. But I'm curious what you guys thought of it. I'm not a liturgist either, I, and I'm barely a theologian. I, I'm much more of a biblical historian and, and scholar. And so uh, this is really not my strength. But I mean, I, in seminary, I certainly was drawn to it. I, I certainly love it. I love theology and, and things like that. But um, the thing, I mean, so the reason why I agreed to do this podcast is because even though I'm, I'm, I'm really not really qualified to talk about this stuff, it's more about I learned something from it. And, and so what I was really excited about this article and what it did for me today is, is actually learning more about mystagogy and, and even the, the um, tradition of mystagogia and how this is, we're in that season and we're kind of connected to last week and talking about seasons and and how mystagogy is this idea of helping us kind of lean into the mystery and understand, um, the, you know, the mysteries that, and how liturgy um, helps us to to understand those mysteries. And I don't know. So I'm fascinated now with mystagogy and want to learn more about it. So that's that's my initial response. All right. Yeah. I, I, have a, I have a feeling we have a strong critic in the group. Well, actually, I think you'd be surprised at what I strongly criticize first. Okay. Um, but the thing that I want to point out first is that all four of us are seminary trained, right? Yep. And all four of us, in some way, are practicing ministry, right? Like, I'm not paid, but I do all sorts of unpaid labor, so I think it's still of value. All four <laughs> of us are actively in ministry in some way or another, yeah? yeah. Yep. If we're not qualified as theologians and liturgists, then who is? Yeah. Because I, I think that not only are the four of us qualified as theologians and liturgists, I want the people around us who have been involved in faith formation their whole lives and who are deeply committed to that to also say that they have reason to believe that the deep ways that they're thinking about things matter. And so I don't want us to set an example of saying we can't say this because I want the people listening to our conversation to also know that they can too. Oh, I agree. I love that. Like, I think, Carl, I was thinking about this question that's sort of the core question in this article and I was thinking about your reference to music that makes community, which has so shaped and um, informed my understanding, along with lots of other tools and resources about how to cultivate, you know, really beautiful participatory faith communities. 
And I think it is about this act of co-creating. And the more we say, I can't do that, that's not my job. Well, I think that's farther we get from this idea of liturgy as the work of the people, as the space that collectively, and maybe that's the real question of COVID, is that we cannot do liturgy alone. Like We actually need one another. We need one another's voices and perspective and presence. Um, I interviewed some people from the noon service a few weeks ago, asking them about what was most meaningful to them and how they engaged lay people so deeply in the life of their community. And we talked not only about the sort of opportunity for people to reflect on scripture out loud together, but to the nonverbals of people when they're participating Mm. in liturgy, the tears that spring into people's eyes and the looks that they offer one another, um, the comments that they share, you know, after it. And I was remembering that one of the key practices of music that makes community is this question of what are you noticing? Which is not meant to be a, do you like this or do you not like this? Which is, I think, how liturgical, um, you know, thinking often goes. Is this right or is this wrong? Does it meet my criteria or does it not? And what are you noticing asks a deeper question. Like, what what emotion is arriving in you, you know, is arising in you um, as you have experienced this? Um, what, what are you noticing you're resisting or where are you feeling an opening or a sense of the spirit moving in your life? And I guess that's my th- thinking about this and reading this article is that if we really are longing for a kind of liturgical mysticism, a, a sense that we are being transformed through liturgy, that what we pray actually does shape not only what we believe, but what we do in terms of the prophetic action that you all were referencing before. And then I think we have to be willing to sort of ask that of every liturgy, every communal gathering we have is like, what happened for you? Um, I remember reading an article in the Anglican Theological Review several years ago about St. Paul's Chapel in New York City and they had this practice after the service where everyone, not just those who were the like leaders of the liturgy, the musicians and the clergy, but anyone that wanted to was invited to come gather around the piano. And they simply asked that question. What did you notice? Wow. What was this like mm. for you? And I've longed for a faith community that could do that for a long time. Like what happened? Did God show up? What word, what phrase, what song, what thing happened in this time that you are different. And sometimes we ask that question like on mission trips or something like, you know, we go Mm -hmm. to the mission that we're going to do. And then we come back together at night and sort of say like, where was God for you in this day? But do we ever do that from liturgy? Like, do we ever gather to reflect on the action, the communal action of the people? Um, So those are my thoughts about it is that like, I think that that for me, that like, what are you noticing question gets at that for me and where do we offer opportunities for that in our communal life? Holy moly, Jane, that what an incredible thing (laughs) that, yeah. I mean, I think the reason that this preface spoke to me and I wanted to share it with you is because even though he does wrap it in an academic language, which is not accessible, I think his basic point is that, 
um, just as, as liturgy is the work of the people, um, if liturgy is the the place where theology is born, mm. then theology is born out of the people. Like you can't have doctrine that is actually divorced from what people believe. And you can't have theology that cannot be made by people who are just sitting there in the pews on a Sunday morning. Um, I mean, we do have those things, but I think this article kind of, in some ways, affirmed my my very regular questioning of the legitimacy of those things. Yes, you know? like I totally agree. Yeah. yeah. He says, Carl, at one point, he says, the community encounters God, undergoes an adjustment, and this adjustment is theology being born, theology in the first instance. And he then goes on to use the Latin words, theologia prima, but I feel like that is exactly it, like, right? Like, that this moment can never be repeated, can never be redone. We can come back to it, but each time it might be different and theology might be born anew. Our knowledge of God yeah. might be made fresh or on some level. I have that same sentence underlined because it, it was the heart of it to me. Um, but I think as Episcopalians, we have some real tensions around this, both with um, so much of our liturgy being formed and created and prepared by a very small, distinct group of people. Um, but also, you know, there's tensions on both sides of the hierarchical spectrum. Um, what do we do with people with those who crave stability, right? Because if this is talking about transformation, um, particularly as Episcopalians, right? There, an, an awful lot of us are pretty resistant to change. That's true in churches everywhere. Um, but, but what do we do with the tension between there is value in this thing that I have loved forever and, but we are here to be transformed. And I think we really have to take that seriously um, because we have to hear where people are and we have to hear where we are to be open to being somewhere else. Um, but I think it's really tricky and I think it's where we stall out a lot. Yeah. And I also, I completely agree with everything you said, Di, especially about, you know, the structures and the ways in which we plan and execute liturgy, um, which I think are flawed on some level in that we don't have more participatory leadership in doing that. But there is a part of me that wonders if we, if, if setting up a dichotomy between ritual tradition that continues on and something that reflects the way I talk about it is like the language of the people are they always opposite of one another, right? Like, is it is it really like it's this or that? Or could it be both? Just can there be ritual that in every instance does what the article points about, right? Like, even if we're saying some of the same words, we are recognizing that God may show up to us differently. So for that reason, we read the lectionary over and over and over again, not because we need, you know, we're, we're limiting ourselves to those readings, but because we expect that God might say something new to us in them in the same way, you know, saying the Eucharistic prayer or reading the same prayers, um, we might hear or become 
experience God in some different way. I think another one of the funny tensions here is that we have a small group of creators of liturgy. And at the same time, because our liturgy is regular, we are able to have the consent of the people in a way that churches who switch liturgy up all the time don't. It's one of the reasons that I am mm-hmm. returned Episcopalian is that I know that no one is going to be putting words of prayer in my mouth that I didn't consent to beforehand. Mm-hmm. I know that that, that I will have reviewed the theology because I have had my Book of Common Prayer. Um, and there is something to that, um, that, that there is communal consent to what we're praying and doing. Wow, Di, I love that so much. Thank you. I mean, what a gift <laughs> to, to have that understanding. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Liturgy and Lawning. Our theme music is by Rihanna Kelly, and you can find more of her music at Bandcamp. We'll be back next week when our topic will be Christianity's liturgical connection to Judaism, and we will have a special guest next week, if it all works out, who we are very excited about. Oh. Uh-huh.